0: we can make a difference.
1: Mutants. Since the discovery of their existence, they have been regarded with fear, suspicion, often hatred. Across the planet debate rages. Are mutants the next link in the evolutionary chain or simply a new species of humanity fighting for their share of the world? Either way, it is a historical fact that sharing the world Has never been humanity's defining attribute.
0: In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero, someone to separate the bad from the good.
1: Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 111, X-Men 2. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And as always, a huge hi and welcome to you all. Whether you are a returning listener, whether you're a brand new listener, basically, as long as you're listening, that makes me really happy and I'm really grateful that you're here and I'm super grateful that you're here for literally one of the best superhero sequels ever made. But before we start on X-Men 2, I just wanted to say a huge thank you to everyone who has listened to previous episodes. So, as of recording, Alien came out last week and Pan's Labyrinth will have literally just come out and the response to Alien specifically has been completely mind-blowing Basically, every time I cover something horror-adjacent, people really love it. Regular listeners will know I'm not the biggest fan of horror. I really enjoy horror sci-fi, though, so... I mean, as I said in that episode on Alien, expect more in that franchise coming soon. This is sequel-tempo, so there is a strong possibility. In fact, I'm not even going to bother beating around the bush. Aliens will be coming in a few weeks to this podcast, and I'm really excited to be going back to that world... Back to the Xenomorph and and back to that franchise for Aliens. But that episode on Alien has been so mind-blowingly popular. (laughs) Uh, It's kind of been a bit weird, actually, how popular that episode has been. And obviously, Pan's Labyrinth, there was a lot of buzz about that episode. And it was an episode that I was really excited to do. Kind of despite it being a bit more melancholy in places. uh, Incredibly upsetting. Incredibly terrifying. And then in the middle, you had the birthday episode on Labyrinth, which I hope was a really nice surprise. And I hope you all enjoyed listening to that as much as I enjoyed making it, because Labyrinth was a formative movie for me growing up, and I still find it so wonderful and fantastic and brilliant. And I felt, well, if I'm gonna go from Pan's Labyrinth, then makes sense to go straight into Labyrinth. And then there has been a couple of days' delay for general release on this episode, and then this episode's coming out. So you guys are really getting a lot from me in August, but it's gonna continue into September. So this is the first episode of what I have dubbed "Sequel temper And these are sequels to some of the most popular movies that I've already covered. A lot of these were actually requested by people, especially this one. I know a couple of people who said, when are you doing X-Men 2? So I know a couple of people who are listening are going to be very happy that I'm going to be doing X-Men 2. But apologies. Because I know a lot of people wanted Spider-Man 2. That was a really popular guess when I put it out on social media. No Batman Returns, because I haven't done Batman. Also No The Dark Knight, because I've not covered that franchise either. And No Terminator 2, which I'm actually quite sad about. Because I would really love to talk about Terminator 2. But I feel like I might need to do the first Terminator first. But what you are getting in Sequel SequelTember is five episodes, five sequels, most of which... And I can't stress that enough, most of which bettered their predecessor. And we're starting this with X-Men 2, also called X2, also called X2 X-Men United, also called X-Men United. This movie has so many different titles. I only really know it is X-Men 2, to be honest, although on streaming here, it's called X2, basically for the purposes of this podcast and to avoid any confusion going forward. And as far as all my marketing is concerned, I'm just going to call this X-Men 2. Because I think that very clearly says, this is the sequel to the 2000 movie, X-Men. So without further ado, let's go into the trailer for X-Men 2, which is genuinely a superhero sequel that bettered its predecessor in every way possible.
2: You have to understand, we
0: thought Bobby was going to a school for the gifted.
1: Bobby is gifted. You should see what he you can do. Have you tried? not being a mutant?
0: Since the discovery of their existence, mutants have been regarded with fear, suspicion, often hatred. Drop the knives and put your hands in the air. I can't. Are they the next link in the evolutionary chain? Or simply a new species of humanity fighting for their share of the world? What do you need, William? Just your authorization for a special operation, Mr. President. We've managed to gather evidence of a mutant training facility in the upstate New York. This facility is a school. Sure it is. Nobody really knows how many even exist. Or how to find them. Except you. Who are you?
2: I keep feeling something terrible is about to happen.
0: I would never let anything happen to you.
1: It's about to get very cold
0: in here. I need you to read my mind. Sometimes the mind needs to discover things for itself. They say you're the bad guy. Is that what they sad? Don't you have that? Most people will never know anything beyond what they see. I have faith in you. The next time you feel like showing off, don't. I used to think you were one of a kind, Wolverine. I was wrong.
1: Several months after the X-Men defeated Magneto and imprisoned him in a seemingly impregnable plastic chamber, a mutant by the name of Nightcrawler infiltrates the White House and attempts to assassinate the President, setting off a chain reaction of anti-mutant measures by the government. Meanwhile, Logan is trying to discover his past and visits the dam at Alkali Lake. He returns to Xavier's school for gifted youngsters and agrees to babysit while the X-Men track Nightcrawler and visit Magneto. William Stryker discovers the whereabouts of Professor X's school and Cerebro and Mystique is planning to break Magneto out of prison. But when Professor X's school is attacked by Stryker's forces, Logan, Rogue, Iceman and a few others are lucky to escape. Those who remain meet in Boston, where they form an uneasy alliance with Magneto to stop Stryker and rescue Professor Xavier. Let's go through the cast of this movie. Obviously, a lot of returning cast members. We have Patrick Stewart as Professor Charles Xavier, Hugh Jackman as Logan, aka Wolverine, Ian McKellen as Eric Lentcher, a.k.a. Magneto. Halle Berry as Aurora Monroe, a.k.a. Storm. Famke Janssen as Jean Grey. James Marsden as Scott Summers, a.k.a. Cyclops. Anna Paquin as Rogue. Rebecca Romaine Stamos as Raven Darkholm a.k.a. Mystique. Brian Cox as William Stryker. Alan Cumming as Kurt Wagner, a.k.a. Nightcrawler. Bruce Davison as Senator Kelly. Aaron Stanford as John Allardyce, a.k.a. Pyro, Sean Ashmore as Bobby Drake, a.k.a. Iceman, Kelly Hu as Yuriko Oyama, a.k.a. Lady Deathstrike, and Daniel Kudmore as Peter Rasputin, a.k.a. Colossus. The screenplay for X-Men 2 was by Michael Doherty, Dan Harris and David Hayter, the story was by Zack Penn, David Hayter, and Brian Singer. It was based on X Men by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, and it was directed by Brian Singer. So, 55 episodes ago, that is episode 56, by the way, I covered the original X Men movie from 2000. I'm not going to go over the points in that episode. I cover a lot of the backstory of the X Men as characters, their comic origins their basis in the civil rights movement, Charles Xavier and Erie Lencher's basis on Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, respectively, Marvel's financial woes in the 90s, and a brief history of the movie's origins as the first major comic book movie adaptation. It's also an allegory for LGBTQ rights, and arguably responsible for superhero cinema as a whole. But let's not forget that X-Men predated Spider-Man by a whole two years, Could you have seen Bob Hoskins as Wolverine? Well, he could have been. (laughs) And I talk about that in that episode too. I would very much recommend that episode on X-Men before this one, especially if you've not listened to it, because I kind of feel like it sets up the backstory, which also includes the backstory of one Mr. Kevin Feige. He is actually integral to this story as well. And Kevin Feige is a guy who's going to become integral to superhero cinema as a whole. I don't think I need to explain to anyone listening who Kevin Feige is. But before I start on this episode, I want to talk about something that is quite important and I want to get it out of the way. Because in the episode on X-Men, I talked a little bit about Bryan Singer and certain allegations that have come out towards Bryan Singer in the past. And one thing that I really want to reiterate when I talk about any movie that has a problematic person in the director's seat, is that we know that in recent years, many men have come forward with allegations against Brian Singer of sexual abuse. These men were minors at the time of the alleged abuse. And I mentioned in that episode that my covering of an X-Men movie directed by Brian Singer is in no way an, an endorsement of him as a director. These allegations, they are vile, they are abhorrent, and... I mentioned in the previous episode on X-Men about separating the art from the artist, which is easy to do when you have no nostalgic link to that art. A lot of millennials grew up with these movies, and their importance in cinema is a little bit unrivaled, really. So when I'm choosing to speak about X-Men movies directed by someone like Brian Singer... It's never to endorse him or his directing work. There are a lot of stories about issues with him on set to do with intoxication, which I'm going to be coming to later because I feel like they do need to be talked about. But to more highlight the work of an incredibly talented and dedicated cast and crew who basically brought this movie to life. Brian Singer is an alleged sexual predator. If I could get away with not mentioning his name, then I would, but I can't. I have zero respect for him but I do have respect for this movie and for the other people involved in this movie and so I just wanted to make that clear up front that this is not an endorsement for him this is an endorsement for this movie and for everyone else who put their time and work into this movie they are the people who I am celebrating I am in no way celebrating Brian Singer as a person with X-Men being a huge hit in the summer of 2000 Talk of a sequel came about soon after that movie was released and obviously, as I said in the episode on X-Men, it was released to huge acclaim in the summer of 2000 and due to the success of the original and despite private reservations about Brian Singer by Fox executives, the studio were keen to bring him back for the sequel, which they did. That November, Brian Singer ambitiously decided that the sequel wouldn't be a sequel but rather an evolution of the characters from the first movie – as well as in scope and tone. He started researching various storylines for a sequel, one of which was the Legacy Virus storyline, which featured in the comics from 1993 to 2001. The Legacy Virus was a viroid which targeted the mutant X gene, and the infected mutant would lose control of their powers before dying, essentially a mutant cancer. This was called Legacy 1, and then Legacy 2 infections would add skin lesions, coughs, and a fever, and would kill mutants much more slowly than the Legacy 1 virus. Later, the virus mutated into Legacy 3, which was accidentally created by an infected mutant called Infectia, who could alter it, meaning the viroid could now affect both mutants and humans. This idea was scrapped after Singer decided he wanted a human villain, as opposed to the Legacy virus's mutant villain, and basically he wanted this to be the series version of the empire strikes back with that idea for the legacy virus storyline out of the window the comic book storyline basis for x-men 2 would ultimately be god loves man kills an original graphic novel written by chris claremont and illustrated by brett anderson published in 1982 god loves man kills was written to be a standalone non-canon x-men story and would include the introduction of the Reverend William Stryker, a mutant-hating preacher who murdered his wife and son after discovering the newborn baby was a deformed mutant. Stryker believed that mutants were abominations in the eyes of God and would kidnap Charles Xavier, connecting him to a replica of Cerebro to perform mutant genocide. The X-Men would team up with their arch-rival Magneto to help find and save Xavier. That all sounds really, really familiar. X-Men as a concept has always been primarily about the fear of the unknown, prejudice and tolerance, about being an outsider and not being understood, that fear of being different and not knowing what to do about it, and having the ability to find others who are also different and form a bond with those people. And one of the newest themes of X-Men 2 would be unity, joining forces with an unlikely ally to combat a new menace. Producer Avi Arad announced the movie would be released in November 2002, and David Hater and Zach Penn were hired separately to write scripts. But they would actually combine their scripts to make one screenplay, with singer and hater working on another script, which was finished in October 2001. In February 2002, Michael Doherty and Dan Harris were hired to rewrite the Hater Penn script, which included new characters Angel and Beast. Only Beast would remain in the final movie, but as a cameo on TV as Dr. Hank McCoy. Angel would have been one of Stryker's experiments and would have eventually become the character Archangel. Angel and Beast were removed because it was felt there were too many characters in the script. Returning characters would include the core team of X-Men, Xavier, Cyclops, Jean Grey, Storm plus young members Rogue and Iceman, and Wolverine would return from his search for his past, which would link his story to the reveal of William Stryker. Also returning was Magneto and Mystique. Brand new to the roster of mutants was Nightcrawler, aka Kurt Wagner, canonically the son of Mystique and Azazel. Azazel would be featured in the future movie, X-Men First Class. Nightcrawler was chosen to appear because of his fascinating dichotomy between his demonic looks and his religious beliefs, both of which are grounds for ostracization and prejudice. And, let's be clear, Nightcrawler is responsible for one of the greatest comic book opening scenes ever made. I still rate this scene higher than pretty much any other movie. There's not much that beats this opening scene from X-Men 2. Nightcrawler attacking the White House under the control of Stryker. It's set to D A Ziri from Mozart's Requiem. Coincidentally, Alan Cumming shares a birthday with Mozart and Alan Cumming had no idea who the X-Men were before he met with Brian Singer to talk about him taking the role of Kurt Wagner. Cumming is a fluent German speaker and he beat out Neil Patrick Harris for the role and relished the involvement despite having to spend four hours every day in makeup to have Nightcrawler's blue skin and tattoos applied, which was an evolution of Gordon Smith's groundbreaking mystique full-body makeup look from the original X-Men And at least Rebecca Romain Stamos' time in the makeup chair was reduced because that woman deserves a medal for walking around set practically naked. And looking incredible too, by the way. Smith designed Nightcrawler's look as well as his prehensile tail, which was a mix of practical and CG tails. The CG tail created by Michael Fink. I'm going to come back to Michael Fink in a little bit. Alan Cummings still regards Kurt Wagner as one of his best roles. But despite Nightcrawler becoming a fan favourite... Alan Cumming would never return to the role. He would cite Brett Ratner's involvement in the sequel, basically reducing Nightcrawler's screen time to a mere cameo. Feeling it wasn't worth the hassle, Cumming declined to return. The character's decision to leave the X-Men was explained in the video game, X-Men The Official Game, where the character, voiced by Cumming, explains he no longer wishes to be part of the X-Men due to the violent nature of their lives and wishes to live peacefully in his native Germany. In 2012, Cumming expressed an interest in returning for X-Men Days of Future Past. However, the character was never included in any versions of that script. The character would return in X-Men Apocalypse, obviously being set in the past as a teenage version of the character and played by Cody Smith McPhee. At the end of X-Men, Charles and Eric are playing chess inside Eric's plastic prison and Magneto poses a disturbing question. "'What will happen if they pass that stupid law, "'the Anti-Mutant Registration Act, "'and they come to your mansion and take your children?' "'To which Xavier replies with steely determination, "'I pity whoever comes to that mansion looking for trouble.'" And this would come to pass in X-Men 2, as Stryker's forces attack Xavier's school for gifted youngsters, and while several of the characters escape, Stryker would still capture children, as well as tease Wolverine with his past through a real ice wall, that wall is real, it's not CG. It was £3,500 worth of ice, basically. Brian Cox would catch Singer's attention with his role as Hannibal Lecter in Manhunter and would represent the real-world human threat to mutants as a racist, oppressive, intolerant person with military and science contacts, as well as huge wealth behind him. Stryker would also intend to control his own mutant son Jason, By using his control powers to create a serum to control the minds and actions of other mutants. While Stryker would condemn the world's mutants to death, he would also use them for his own gain including Kelly Who's Lady Deathstrike. Deathstrike also has adamantium claws and healing powers presumably sourced from Stryker's experiments on Wolverine. Filming would start in June 2002 in Vancouver as opposed to the first movie which was shot in Toronto over 64 sets in 38 different locations were used, and the production fully utilised the huge sets needed for a movie where everything was bigger, including a budget $50 million more than the previous movie. They used sound stages at Vancouver Film Studios and Mammoth Studios, a former Sears department store, where the production built the single largest soundstage in North America. Production designer Guy Hendricks dias oversaw construction of 20 huge sets, including the Xavier Mansion, Cerebro, which would actually be repurposed and distressed to become Stryker's copy of Cerebro, and conceptualised and built the Danger Room. And the Danger Room is a very well-known setting for anyone who's ever read an X-Men comic or seen the animated series, which is basically how I discovered X-Men, was from the animated series. Everyone knows what the Danger Room is. And the fact that the Danger Room was built for a scene that was ultimately never shot, really, really makes me sad. Obviously, we do get the Danger Room in the next movie. The Sentinels would also make an early appearance in the script. Concept artist Ricardo Delgado would design these huge robots, but due to the reported additional cost of $8 million to bring the Sentinels to screen, they were scrapped. The Sentinels would, again, cameo in The Last Stand, which is the next movie in the franchise, as well as feature in Days of Future Past. And the Sentinels have always been something that I always really wanted to see on screen. There were several things that I wanted to see from an X-Men movie. The Danger Room, obviously, being one. The Sentinels being another. And one particular villain we've never actually seen in the movies, and that was a villain called Mr. Sinister. We never saw Mr. Sinister in the movies. I kind of feel like maybe this is like a little hint to Kevin Feige that now they have control of the X-Men maybe bring in Mr. Sinister, because I think he'd be a really, really cool villain. I know he's been teased in certain post-credit scenes and stuff like that, but I think having someone like Mr. Sinister would be really great for an X-Men movie. But yeah, I always wanted to see Sentinels. So another reason why I adore Days of Future Past is we finally get to see... Classic sentinels, and we also get to see really weird futuristic sentinels as well. But anyway, I digress. When it came to filming on location, especially for the final scene at Alkali Lake, there was actually insufficient snow in the Peter Lockheed Provincial Park in Kananaskis, Alberta, so that meant that fake snow actually had to be applied to the area for that third act escape. Dias would also create an abandoned gothic-style church, a science museum that was filmed at Vancouver's Plaza of Nations, a classical Victorian mansion, and the concrete bunker base of Strykers at Alkali Lake. Strykers' base occupied half of the 113,000-square-foot stage at Mammoth Studios, Mammoth Studios is a pretty apt name as well, considering if you think of something being mammoth, quite big. The stage came complete with a three-storey-tall water spillway. 60 miles of electrical cabling meant that Director of Photography Newton Thomas Siegel could light any point of the set at a moment's notice. The augmentation room, where Wolverine's adamantium skeleton was grafted onto his body years before, was meant to look mouldy and mildewy, as if it hadn't been used in a while. And one of the most fascinating things that i actually found out about this movie, looking into it, was the fact that Magneto's plastic prison was completely made out of plastic, even down to the surveillance cameras. And this is according to Guy Hendrix-Dias, who actually designed the plastic prison to be completely made of plastic. He also recreated the Oval Office, which is actually oversized for the filming, including an exact replica of the carpeting by then-current First Lady Laura Bush, and an exact replica of the president's desk it was made of clay it took two months to build chandeliers were also handmade and paintings of former presidents and first ladies were all prints but they were textured to look like the original oil paintings in the white house additionally dais took special pride and delight in placing hidden x's throughout the sets it makes you actually want to go back and re-watch the movie and find All of these hidden Xs, a little bit like Where's Wally. And for American listeners, that is Where's Waldo. We call it Where's Wally. Just to make that completely clear. But yeah, let's let's play Where's Wally with X-Men 2 and find all those Xs. I re-watched this movie a couple of days ago. And (laughs) I didn't see very many, but I wasn't really looking out for them. But yeah, apparently there are a lot of hidden Xs. Even in things like Curtains... So, if you do re-watch X-Men 2, let me know how many hidden X's that you find. So, the size, scale and scope of X-Men 2 was bigger in every regard. Characters, designs, sets, special effects. Even Halle Berry's role had been increased due to her Oscar win for Monsters Ball the previous year. Michael Fink was the visual effects supervisor and his workload increased from the first movie substantially. There were more visual effects, especially the third act where almost every cut included a visual effect of some sort. Nightcrawler's teleportation was called bamf which is basically an onomatopoeia because not only was this word used in the comics to describe his teleporting, but they purposely made the word sound the same as the sound. So the idea was for Nightcrawler to look like he was dematerialising in three dimensions and then rematerialising with the Banff. Uh, I'm not very good at making sound effects but just pretend Nightcrawler is there and then bam he's gone. The Blackbird was redesigned and increased in size from 60 foot to 85 foot, obviously this is all virtual. X-Men 2 had 800 visual effects shots compared to X-Men's 520 and those numbers sound really small especially if we compare it to superhero cinema now but at the time That was pretty groundbreaking stuff to have that many visual effects. And most of these visual effects actually still hold up as well, which is similarly groundbreaking. The experience for the cast of shooting X-Men 2 was mostly positive in that the main cast could easily step back into the roles that they played three years prior with complete confidence in what they were doing and in their characters' traits and personalities. Most characters are expanded on in some way. And the X-Men and the Brotherhood, or what's left of the Brotherhood at this stage, are ably led by both Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen with material that they still elevate to this day. And the characters only get better and more interesting with the James McAvoy-Michael Fassbender pairing too. I feel like this is a stupid question, but let me know if there's any interest out there for me covering First Class. Because genuinely that and Days of Future Past are easily some of the best X-Men movies. And I know First Class also started as an origins movie for Magneto, which I find very fascinating in itself. So if you are interested in me covering specifically X-Men First Class and X-Men Days of Future Past, then hit me up on social media, let me know. And if there is a lot of interest, then I will look into getting those scheduled in. Obviously, when it comes to newer X-Men movies, I have, back in the day talked about X-Men Dark Phoenix, which I actually talked about just after it was released. And while there's little things that you can enjoy in that movie, mostly it's not brilliant. And the chances genuinely of me covering X-Men Apocalypse are reasonably slim. However, (laughs) I'm never going to say never, but however, I love First Class and I love Days of the Future Past. So if there is interest out there, then please let me know. I mentioned at the start of this episode about Brian Singer. I really don't want to talk about this guy again, but here we go. There were serious allegations made against him in recent years. There were also reports on the set of X-Men that he'd taken drugs or that he was intoxicated. Despite those allegations, he returned for the sequel, and reportedly Singer clashed with producer Tom DeSanto after Singer was incapacitated on set under the influence of Unknown Substances, and this was while he was working on X-Men 2. DeSanto stepped in after Singer insisted a dangerous stunt be performed, despite a lack of stunt coordinator on the set, basically because the scene was supposed to be shot the following day. So the stunt involving Hugh Jackman went wrong, and it left Jackman injured and bleeding. DeSanto ordered the production to be shut down immediately, and a full investigation to take place. The studio, however, and I do not understand why... These white dudes keep getting a pass, but the studio sided with Singer on it and ordered Tom DeSanto to return to L.A., even though Tom DeSanto was doing the right thing for the cast and crew. So, basically, the cast, minus Ian McKellen and Rebecca Remain Stamos, obviously concerned for their colleague Hugh Jackman and for the continued safety of the set under Singer's intoxication, gathered outside Singer's trailer, dressed in full costume and threatened to quit if Tom DeSanto was removed from the set. Halle Berry famously told Brian Singer, you can kiss my black ass, a quote which has been reported, but without the full context of the situation. Tom DeSanto would decline to comment on the incident, and a rep for Bryan Singer would deny it. It kind of makes you wonder what a director needs to do to get fired. Even Olivia Munn came out to speak on her struggles working with Singer on X-Men Apocalypse, And like I say, it just seems to me like if you are a white dude in Hollywood, you can get away with pretty much anything. I like to think that nowadays he wouldn't get away with it. But back in the early 2000s, clearly they thought that he was the goose that was laying the golden eggs at Fox. It really does make you question why they continued to hire him. Just to call back as well to The Empire Strikes Back, as I said, Brian Singer wanted this to be the franchise's version of Empire. Jean Grey's death and subsequent tease of her resurrection was kept a huge secret on set. It was kept out of the script. Even Famke Jansen didn't know until midway through production, similar to Mark Hamill not knowing Luke Skywalker was Darth Vader's son till midway through production of The Empire Strikes Back. And, of course, this reveal would set the stage for X-Men The Last Stand, which would be directed by Brett Ratner, A guy with his own sexual assault and harassment claims on the set. I mean, seriously, what is it with Fox and directors of these X-Men movies, Elliot Page, accused Ratner of sexual harassment, as well as outing him as gay on the set when he was only 18 years old? It genuinely is such a shame that this series is so tarnished by so many on-set sexual abuse, harassment allegations, intoxication allegations putting people in danger. Many of these have actually been confirmed by other cast members and crew as well. And let's be grateful too that Joss Whedon wasn't involved with the script on this one. Uh, No toads getting struck by lightning this time around. Let's move on to my favourite part of this podcast, the obligatory Keanu reference. This is where I try and link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. Now, famously, I find it really hard to link Keanu to Marvel movies, especially as he's Consistently been linked to the role of Wolverine in the past. I believe also the role of Ghost Rider as well. The Wolverine link was the X-Men episodes of Keanu reference. So I can't use that again because I try and make them unique every time. So I think for this episode, I'm just going to concede that Keanu Reeves is clearly a mutant. His mutant power is never looking any older. This is a power that he shares with Paul Rudd. They both clearly share the same X gene And let's be honest, it's the power that we all want. It's the power that he has, just generally. It's a really bad link, but I'm running out. I'm running out of links for Marvel movies now. If anyone out there has a decent link between Keanu and a Marvel movie that I've not done, then let me know, because I will use it. And if i use it i will credit you let's talk about the music because brian singer's regular collaborators john ottman composed the score for x-men 2 he couldn't actually do the original x-men score he was busy with something else at the time and so he took over the theme of x-men 2 from john cayman who did x-men and as i already said he used a sample of d ace from mozart's requiem which is probably the most memorable part of the whole piece of music from this movie. Interestingly, when it came to rating X-Men 2, it was originally given an R rating by the MPAA due to violence during the scene where Stryker's forces attack Xavier's school. A few seconds had to be cut to ensure a PG-13 rating, and it's one of the very first times that we see... Wolverine go full berserker and it's something that we really don't see in its entirety in it's very graphic violent entirety until we get Logan and at the time obviously Blade and its sequels they were handling an R rating quite nicely and they were really thriving on that X-Men obviously couldn't really thrive on an R rating and it wouldn't either the series as a whole wouldn't until we would get to Logan. And I'm going to be recommending Logan at the end of this episode. X-Men 2 opened on May the 1st here in the UK and on May the 2nd in the US. In the US, it would open a number one against fierce competition from the Lizzie McGuire movie. <laughs> Um, I mean, it's a joke, but it's also not, because (laughs) it really did open against the Lizzie McGuire movie. The Lizzie McGuire movie was in second place. The competition wasn't really that fierce, to be fair. I mean, we're talking literally millions and millions and millions of dollars difference. X-Men 2 would stay at number one for its second week, and it would stop The Matrix Reloaded from hitting the number one spot. Is it too late to change the obligatory Keanu reference? (laughs) Because... Whoops. But anyway, X-Men 2 would beat The Matrix Reloaded in that week by about $7 million. Considering that was its second week and The Matrix Reloaded's first week, that is quite a significant difference. On a $110 million budget, X-Men 2 would bring in $214 million domestically in the US and $192 million internationally for a worldwide gross of 407.7 million dollars and I mentioned about it beating The Matrix Reloaded well despite that initial beating of The Matrix Reloaded overall X-Men 2 would be the sixth highest grossing movie of the US box office in 2003 The Matrix Reloaded would have it's The Matrix Revenge and be the third highest grossing so really Although it beat it in that first week it was out, it didn't really beat it, just generally. And obviously, critics agreed that X-Men 2 was bigger, bolder, and better than its predecessor. And in many ways, although it didn't know this at the time, it would actually come to shape the superhero sequel template. And be lauded as one of the best comic book movies ever made, and certainly one of the best in the entire core X-Men franchise. As I've mentioned, the Dark Phoenix saga would come to fruition in X-Men The Last Stand, Widely regarded as one of the least favourites in the X-Men movie canon. Is it possible I'll cover it one day? I mean, Never say never. I certainly think that there are many more interesting X-Men movies, many of which I've actually spoken about in the past. But yeah, never say never. I might round out the trilogy, who knows. So, let's go now into what social media think about this movie. And we're going to start with as always the wonderful patrons of this podcast
2: and we're going to start with as always the wonderful andy and andy says x2 the best of the first part of the x-men trilogies wait the second part was a quadrilogy can you see why this series has so many issues this one improves upon the first one by making it an actual team film telling several stories at once helps us to finally get to know the members of the x-men Except for Cyclops, who again is a criminally underutilised actor whose only real contribution to these movies is yelling, Jim! Loosely based on the graphic novel God Loves Man Kills, which is one of my absolute favourite X Men stories, it tells the story of the lengths people will go to eradicate a race they determined to be dangerous. Kudos to Brian Cox and Alan Cumming, who did a really great job as Nightcrawler. This film is definitely top three X Men, as long as you're not counting Logan or either of the Deadpool films. Now I need to go lay down my head hurts we also have a comment from mike and mike says the first x-men movie was fine as a prologue to the story it never felt like a full story this one on the other hand really delivered on all of the promise that the first one had tried for hugh jackman especially got so much delicious character development to sink his insanely talented teeth into i must echo andy's statements about alan cummings nightcrawler there are some characters from the comics who definitely wouldn't work in live action and I had thought Nightcrawler Crawler was one of them, but he imbued that character with all the humanity that the character deserves. From start to finish, probably my second favourite X-Men movie behind Days of Future Past. Plus, the ending foreshadowing the Dark Phoenix story had me tingling with anticipation for three years. So you can imagine my tears after coming out of X-Men 3. I think I'll go have another good cry about that now. I kind of grouped Andy and Mike's comments together because they
1: are actually two of the co-hosts of the fantastic podcast, which is Geek Salad. They are basically a one-stop shop for all of your geeky podcast needs, whether that's TV, whether that's music, whether that's movies. I've been on their podcast several times and I always have the best time talking to these guys. They are so much fun. They are so knowledgeable and especially knowledgeable on comic books as well. So if you are really interested in really, really, really geeky stuff, then check out Geek Salad. I will pop some information in the show notes because their podcast is truly excellent.
2: We also have a patron comment from Sam, and he says, Yay, my favourite comic book movie for a long time. Still really good and easily the most accurate depiction of the X-Men as more of a dysfunctional family than a team of superheroes. Opening scene is also still phenomenal. 22, hold on. (laughs) 22,222. Out
1: of 10,000 adamantium injections, I don't think I'd really want 22,222 adamantium injections. But anyway, so Movie Reviews in 20 Qs is the name of Sam's podcast. It is a totally unique concept where him and the guys on his podcast, usually Liz, sometimes Matthew, sometimes Cahoo, sometimes Stacey, they ask 20 or sometimes a guest Ask 20 Weird and Wonderful Questions about the movie that they're covering. It's a hilarious podcast as well as being a completely unique concept. I am such a huge fan. Make sure that you take a listen. And the final patron comment is from Derek.
2: And he says, I could not love this one more. The first scene is sheer perfection. And it highlights the themes of growing up different in a world which demands sameness. What's the greatest threat to mutants? Not Magneto. It's humanity. Despite that, Professor X and his x men fight for them. And Derek hosts The
1: Midnight Myth with his amazing wife, Laurel. They talk about history, mythology and philosophy on their podcast and how it pertains to popular culture. It is an amazing podcast. Make sure that you check them out and information on all of the patrons podcasts can be found in the show notes they are all shows that i would absolutely recommend and all shows that i listen to myself and all shows that i've been on as well i've been on geek salad a couple of times i've been on movie reviews in 20qs a couple of times and i've also been on the midnight myth as well so make sure you check out those particular episodes because i'm on them but otherwise please make sure you check out the patrons podcasts they are absolutely well worth your time we're going to move over to the Twitter comments now and we're going to start with at FilmEffectPod who said 2003, what a time to be a fan of film. The marketing behind this film was massive and it definitely paid off. I caught this a couple of times at the cinema and bought the DVD day one. Still holds up as one of my favourite films of the entire series if not my overall favourite. At arguing w myself said More realised than its predecessor. People look back at this entry as being better than it actually is. Personally, I can't re-watch it due to the importance of one character in later films. There may be no I in team, but the studio said there is one in Wolverine. I do agree with the point that these films are very focused on Wolverine. So if you're not a particular fan of that character or a Hugh Jackman, I mean, I don't know why you wouldn't be a fan of Hugh Jackman, because he is pretty awesome, but they are very Wolverine-focused. So if you are looking for something that is a lot more faithful to the original material, a lot more faithful to other characters in particular, maybe someone like Cyclops, who is very short-shifted by these movies, then, yeah, I guess it could potentially be a bit of a disappointment. But for me, Hugh Jackman is so good as Wolverine that I, I really do overlook the... Other issues that I have with the casting of these movies, I think I mentioned in the previous X-Men episode as well, I've always been very irked about the casting of Rogue because she's one of my favourite characters ever in the whole of the X-Men. And so for them to make her a teenager, I was not too impressed with that. But I kind of just live with it and I still kind of enjoy the films for what they are. But I still want to see a good cinematic Rogue and so that's one of the things I'm hoping the MCU can deliver. At Thief CGT said... Probably one of my favourite comic book movies. It has kick-ass action, but it also has gravitas and treats its plot and characters with respect, without sacrificing the entertainment. Hell of a cast, also. At D.W. Lundberg said, People forget that at the time, X2 was a game-changer that gave us multi-layered, rich in theme comic book film that had us siding with different factions based on the situations they were in. Some sequences, Nightcrawler Attack, Wolverine vs Deathstrike, are still gorgeously shot. At Next to the Isle said, very good sequel in terms of world building. Stupendous opening with Nightcrawler in the White House, Alan Cumming, wow, and a wonderful turn from Brian Cox as Striker. At Jonathan Blade said, X2 was probably the best representation of comic book movies for authenticity of action and style of narrative up to that point in time, 2003. At Trivia underscore lad said, X2's handling of a large ensemble cast was unparalleled until Infinity War, and I can't think of another superhero movie that has invested a location with the same sense of home as the X-Mansion has in this film. Still an all-time great among comic book movies in my eyes. Absolutely, 100% agree. Moving over to Instagram, uh, we have one comment on Instagram, it's from at Friendly Pod, who simply says, Alan Cumming is a revelation as Nightcrawler. Love this movie. No comments on Facebook for X-Men 2, X2, X-Men United, whatever you want to call it. And a huge thank you to everyone on Patreon and on social media for providing their comments on X-Men 2. X-Men may still be credited with kicking off the modern superhero cinema boom, but it's X-Men 2 that cemented the franchise as something worth sticking around for. It's clear that a crazy amount of scope went into making X-Men 2 bigger, but also better. This movie came out three years after X-Men and one year after Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, another legacy-defining superhero movie and another franchise, actually, that would have its highs, lows and be rebooted a few times over the years. When we think of modern superhero cinema, you have the two main factions, a dark, moody DC universe and a lighter, more humorous Marvel universe. X-Men 2 created the mould for a movie that could be dark and have substantial things to say on civil rights, fear, oppression and intolerance but can also throw in some humour and balance multiple character arcs although arguably some characters still feel shortchanged and why is it always poor James Marston's Cyclops? He did actually have extra scenes being imprisoned by Stryker but they were cut for time. Unlike Sam Raimi's Spider-Man where you have one hero to focus on with X-Men you had multiple and X-Men 2 upped the ante even more to have the X-Men unite with their enemy Magneto himself a... Complicated, multifaceted villain with shades of grey as well as a fascinating backstory. Well rounded, complex villains are something the MCU has struggled with, canonically, and here you have not only Ian McKellen but also Brian Cox. It goes without saying that these movies live and die on the strength of Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart. Without those fine gentlemen, superhero cinema would look very different, and I am certain of that. And while this movie is undoubtedly forever tarnished by Brian Singer, it goes without saying that the rest of the crew and cast absolutely deserve a light to be shone on them for making what still is one of the greatest superhero sequels, greatest X-Men movies, greatest cold opens to any superhero movie, and the template for what's to come. Spider-Man 2, Batman Begins, and yes, even Iron Man would all take notes from this. X-Men started the evolution of superhero cinema... And mutation is the key to our evolution. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on X-Men 2. If you did enjoy this episode, you can help Verbal Diorama be noticed and grow by doing something like telling a friend or family member about this podcast. You can go on social media, you can like posts and retweet posts if you wish, or you could leave a rating and review on something like Podchaser or Apple Podcasts. And if you did like this episode on X-Men 2 specifically, you might also like one of the following. So I'm going to be recommending episode 19, Logan. It is one of the earlier episodes of this podcast. So I'll be completely honest, uh, it's probably not as well polished as I hope some of these episodes are. But it is one of my favourite episodes. It's one of my favourite movies. It's one of my favourite movies to talk about. The evolution of Hugh Jackman as this character, as Wolverine, as Logan, whatever you want to call him culminates in that movie with Patrick Stewart. It is an absolutely phenomenal superhero movie. It's also a Western. It's also about family. It is a very emotional movie. It still makes me tear up just thinking about it, but it is brutal and it's graphic and it's absolutely befitting of Hugh Jackman's time and dedication to that character. So absolutely, if you're a fan of X-Men and you've not seen Logan, then please see that movie and please listen to that episode. Episode 56, which is on the previous movie on X-Men, sets up a lot of the story about how the X-Men actually came to the big screen in the first place, because it is quite a fascinating story. This was a time when superhero cinema really wasn't a thing. Obviously, Blade had come out in 1998, but really having this huge superhero team-up movie was pretty much unheard of. So the fact that X-Men got made in the first place was quite phenomenal, so that's episode 56, and talking about team-up movies, really one of the greatest superhero team-up movies of all time is episode 97, The Avengers, I'm not going to recommend all the Avengers movies, although I have covered all of them, but that movie specifically did something that so many movies have tried, and so many movies have failed, it gave every single character an arc, something to do, and arguably it's something that, The first X-Men movie kind of struggled with. Obviously, X-Men 2 does it a hell of a lot better. But really, again, kind of set that template for something like The Avengers to follow. Uh, And finally, episode 102, which was quite recent, on Deadpool. Just because it's an X-Men movie and it's super duper fun. I can't wait to see Deadpool in the MCU because I think... That is it's just going to be absolutely hilarious. He is not going to know what to do in a PG-13 Avengers movie, is he? He's going to get bleeped. He's not going to know what's going on. But I really love Deadpool, and I think Ryan Reynolds is absolutely perfectly cast. And that movie does ask the question, Stuart or McAvoy? And this time I've gone with Stuart. So those are my episode recommendations. Let me know if you think that I've missed anything on social media. As I said we're in sequel timber so the next episode is going to be a sequel to a much loved previous episode the predecessor was episode 50 of this podcast it was quite a big episode actually episode 50 that was quite a big deal for this podcast and so for episode 112 we are going to toy story 2 so we're going to be back with woody buzz and the rest of the gang in andy's room but we're also going to be meeting some new toys we're going to be meeting Jesse, Bullseye, and Stinky Pete the Prospector in another sequel that improved on its original, but also that had a lot of issues making it to the big screen. I'm very excited to talk about Toy Story 2. It is one of my favourite movies of all time. So please come back next week for that. You can follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Verbal Diorama. If you wish to support the show on Patreon, it is VerbalDiorama.com/patreon. A huge thank you to the patrons of Verbal Diorama. They are Simon E, A, Hardy L, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Jason, Kristin, Cat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Scott, Mark, Brendan, Ian, Lisa, Dan, and Sam. Have you ever tried not being a patron? You can check out my merch store, it's verbaldiorama.com slash merch. You can email me, verbaldiorama at gmail.com, and you can say hi. And you can also pop over to filmstories.co.uk. You can check out the magazine, you can check out the website, because we should all be supporting independent publications. And finally, I wanted to finish with something that I found quite interesting. It's actually a line from a William Shakespeare play. It's Henry VIII. It's Act 5, Scene 5 of that play, if you're interested. And it's got nothing to do with X-Men. But hopefully you'll figure out why I've included it. Nor shall this piece sleep with her, but as when the bird of wonder dies, the maiden phoenix, her ashes new create another heir, as great in admiration as herself. So shall she leave her blessedness to one, when heaven shall call her from this cloud of darkness, who from the sacred ashes of her honour... Shall star-like rise as great in fame as she was. Because, you know, it's about phoenixes and stuff. Bye.